Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we're going to be talking about work. Who does it and who gets paid for it? It's not the same people. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas, where you can read elegant and expansive essays on every subject imaginable. From Amir Srinivasan on pronouns to James Meek on the WHO, from Pankaj Mishra on Anglo-America to Catherine Rundell on the Greenland Shark. Get 12 issues in print and online, that's half a year of the LRB, for just £12, with the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Helen Thompson is with us, and also it's a pleasure to welcome back Diane Coyle. Hi, Diane. Good morning. The inspiration for this, let's be honest up front, is the brilliant article that you wrote in the New York Times a few weeks ago. And I'm just going to give the headline because the headline tells people what we're going to be talking about. The New York Times said at the top of your article, why did it take a pandemic to show how much unpaid work women do? So we'll come on to the pandemic in a bit because that's obviously at the heart of this. But it's also true, as you say there, that um, people have done unpaid work, especially women, for a long, long time. Lots of kinds of work doesn't get rewarded, doesn't get valued, and doesn't get measured either. So it more or less is invisible, but it's real work. The digital revolution then added a whole extra level of complexity to that story. Can you just tell us a bit about that before we do the, the pandemic? over the last decade or so, what's happened to the character of work and who gets paid for it because of the digital revolution? It's been the case since the post-war era and the introduction of the kind of measurement of the economy we have now that unpaid work in the home doesn't get measured in the formal economic statistics. There was some debate about this, uh, about where to put what economists call the production boundary. And the conclusion at the time was that it was just too complicated to measure all that unpaid work because there's no wage rate to attach to it, so you wouldn't know how to value it in the accounts. Obviously, in most Western societies, probably not Scandinavia, the great bulk of that unpaid work in the home is done by women, so it's always been gendered, and feminist scholars have always argued for better measurement. And there's been some sporadic measurement of how many hours a week at home men and women put into household work like like caring and cleaning and cooking meals and so on. But over the whole of the post-war era, as women have gone out to work in the paid workforce and bought domestic appliances and ready meals and uh, paid other people to do their cleaning, that means that the paid economy, the marketed economy that we measure, has been growing partly as a result of that social switch. So the kind of underlying productivity growth that we've measured over the post-war era has been, to some degree, overstated by that. Digital started to change it because it's brought a lot of things that we used to pay for back into the home. So, for example, online banking, instead of going to a bank and having somebody else do the transactions for us, we do that ourselves now. Travel agency, similarly, we don't do it on the high street now, we do it from our computers at home. We also do things like posting fantastic free podcasts and 
entertaining videos of our cats and small children and blogs that people can read for free that are substituting for marketed products. So the whole digital change has started to move activities back over the production boundary. And that's why I got interested, because I think about measuring the digital economy. We don't have good figures about these things. We don't know to what extent this is reducing measured productivity now. So I started thinking about this in the context of the productivity puzzle, the slowdown in growth in most Western economies since around 2005. So that moving back into domestic life of what had been paid work because of the digital revolution, do we know whether that's gendered too, in the sense that as, it, as work comes back into the home, even if we're talking about you know, booking holidays or whatever it is, do we have any evidence as to whether that is more likely to be done by women once it comes back into the home? We don't, know, not systematically. To get this kind of data, you need to run time use surveys. Very few countries do these regularly. And the kind of questionnaires need updating to take account of all the digital activities. And that process of gathering the basic statistics is, is just starting. So we're going to get onto the pandemic. We do have a bit more evidence about what's happening during the pandemic because there have been special surveys. But we don't know yet about the digital aspect of it. So we now have, what, three, four months worth of a, a new kind of political economy and work economy, which is the lockdown economy. We talked to you about this a couple of months ago, but we have a lot more evidence even in the last couple of months. What do you think that we are seeing now and how much of it is specifically about the pandemic and how much of it is just a kind of snapshot of these broader trends? We're just getting to see them more clearly because people are literally in their homes. I think I'd interpret it as exacerbating existing social patterns and trends, exacerbating all kinds of existing inequalities. Women are more likely to have been laid off and furloughed during the pandemic. The kinds of sectors where this has hit most heavily, like hospitality and retail, tend to have a higher proportion of women working in them. If you're at home, Anyway, whatever your gender, you're more likely to pick up domestic duties. So that's one part of it. And then given that the existing pattern is that women do a couple of hours a day more of this unpaid work than men do, then that's that's reinforced it. And of course, everybody knows that all working parents have been hit by this too, because they've got to try and work from home and look after the kids at the same time. So this isn't only something that's hitting, hitting the women in the households, but it is clearly gendered. If I can put in a plug for the Economics Observatory, where we're assembling a large repository of evidence about what's happening to the pandemic, there are a couple of really great articles on there about this particular phenomenon. I think one of the things that's really striking as well is, is that in recessions, and obviously this isn't any kind of ordinary recession because it's been inflicted upon the economy by governments across the world quite deliberately, but in an ordinary recession, we would see manufacturing employment in particular being the place where you and construction manufacturing and construction really where you can see economic activity fall most quickly and where unemployment rises most rapidly and what we've seen in this these self-inflicted and recessions is is that it's the service sectors and particularly hospitality entertainment that have been savagely hit and female uh, employment is disproportionately high in those sectors compared to what it is in manufacturing and construction. So if we just looked at it in terms of the economic shock, it actually has directly impacted 
more women in terms of being laid off than it has men. So, so to take one example, and Diane, you, you mentioned this, I mean, it's not just that childcare has to be done, but schooling has to be done as well. And again, there does seem to be quite a lot of evidence, I think, that that falls disproportionately on women. But another of the features of this is that public sector employment, people who are employed in one way or another by the state, is holding up. And the state isn't laying people off. The state isn't, for instance, laying off teachers. The state is continuing to pay teachers to do some work. And it's, you know, it, it is actually quite politically controversial, even within schools, how people value the work that is being done by teachers under these conditions relative to the work that's being done by parents. Is there, is there some kind of double counting going on there? I mean, if you have an economy where in some sectors teachers are still being paid to teach, but actually parents are doing the bulk of the teaching, how does that factor into this? Well, we're not measuring what parents are doing is how it factors in. So there's no double counting going on because one of those isn't being counted. But, you know, I think what you're highlighting is another aspect of the patterns that we're seeing. Public sector employment clearly has held up. Some parts of that, including teaching and social care and nursing, are also gendered professions. But in, certainly in, um, in social care, those are very badly paid jobs as well. So if you put to one side for the moment the household bit of it, what we're seeing in, in the paid-for economy in, in paid work is that those who are more likely to be able to work from home are better off and more likely to be men and those who still have to go out to work and, in fact, in some cases have borne the burden of, of dealing with the pandemic are, in some cases, more likely to be women, but also have lower salaries. So the key workers are not our best-paid workers, and it's the bankers and the management consultants and others who are able to work from home who are well off and actually seeing their savings go up because they can't spend as much money as they normally do. And as you say, so it's not double-counted because we're not counting a lot of this, but how would we count it? I mean, what would be the way to try and, if you take something like education, to try and get a proper picture of all the value that is being produced by the different types of people, paid, unpaid, out of the home, in the home, who are contributing to something like education? Is is there a way that we could do that? Or are we trapped in these other metrics? I don't think we're trapped at all. We can do it by surveys. People have in their head the idea that the numbers, the official statistics of the economy are some kind of natural object, but they are analytical and statistical constructs. We can do different surveys and measure different things. So if we, instead of focusing on what we already collect, we ran surveys of what households are doing instead, then we would have measures of this. And they do happen occasionally. They should happen consistently, at least annually. So we get a, a picture of, of the time trends. And it matters not just because we want to know whether the economy is growing or not, whether things of economic value are taking place or not. It matters for all kinds of policies. You can't really devise good policies about social care, about pensions and tax systems and benefit systems without understanding who is doing um, what activities, whether they happen to be in the measured market sector or not. Yeah, I think this goes back to the issue of why we have national economic statistics in the way in which we do in the in the first place. And the question is, is what is the purpose of having this knowledge or this estimation of knowledge? And if we go back to the way in which um, growth 
accounting essentially was done, it was done to in relation to a particular kind of way of managing the economy that went under the name Keynesian demand management, though in practice it was more complicated than that. And the statistics were produced in relation to managing the economy around monetary policy and um, fiscal policy. And we don't any longer think that that's a sufficient way of thinking about economic activity. And we don't think it's any longer a sufficient way of thinking about the more human issues, let's call them that, around economic activity. But we can't devise alternative policies based on that knowledge without collecting statistics differently. Helen's touching on a really interesting point here, which is the relationship between the ideas about how you think about running the economy and the statistics you gather, and then the, and the, then the feedback loop, the consequences of those statistics for all the decisions that get taken by businesses and, and, and by governments. And one of the other features of the pandemic that I'm really noticing is a real upsurge in interest in a broader understanding of what it is that makes the economy better than it was. You know, the point of these statistics is that we can see whether things are getting better or not, and does the government need to change its policies? And people are questioning what does better mean? You know, what does better mean when people who are seen as key workers can't actually afford food and rent or minimum wage? What does better mean if we're not counting health outcomes or the importance of access to green spaces, which we've realised now are more important than perhaps we thought they were previously? So I think what we're going to see over time is a reshaping of our understanding of what, quotes the economy is. And the pandemic is going to accelerate that change. So, Helen, you said, obviously, because this is a self-inflicted recession or a government-inflicted recession, it's different. It's had very different effects from the recessions that we've known over the past generation. And yet, as Diane says, it's also an exacerbation of existing trends. And it's, in a way, kind of highlighted things that were going on anyway and are now much clearer for us to see. So we've touched on this, Helen, you and I a bit, you've talked about it, but we're further into this story. Does this look to you like a categorically different kind of economic event, economic political event than previous recessions and economic crises? Or do you think we can tell that continuous story that it's part of a a trend? I think this is a a really, really hard question to um, answer because I think different things are going on in, in different parts of the economy, both domestically here in Britain and, and worldwide. I mean, I think that you know, there's one place where actually the continuity has been really striking, ultimately, despite what it looked like at the beginning of the, the crisis when we had a financial crash, is, is that if you looked at the, the financial markets and the share markets in particular at the moment, you really wouldn't understand why the economy, the world economy is in such um, difficulty. So we've we have continued, I would say, with this trend that's gone on since some point after the previous crash in, in 2008, where we have a financial market economy that bears very little relationship to the real productive economy. And that essentially that is because of the ways in which central banks have, whether deliberately or not, ended up propping up financial markets with asset purchases. And so we are going to see that trend that we've seen since 2008 towards much greater asset inequality continue, I think, emphatically so in the world in which we now live. I think that if you looked at it in terms of the the big world economy picture, all the tensions that were there in the US-China 
relationship have now become even more aggravated. I mean, to the point where you can start perhaps talking about there being an actual breakdown of that economic relationship. And it's much less likely that the provisional trade agreement that had been reached in, in January will go ahead. But then we're seeing all these other changes, um, which I think are really hard still to get our heads around because we can describe certain things like Diana and I have been doing about the differences between services and manufacturing and construction, say, or look at what the impact on the on the household um, has been in the relationship between the household economy and economic activity. But I think that what we what we can't really begin to get our heads around yet is is like what it has done to people's economic psychology. And I think there's enough evidence to suggest that different kinds of people are reacting very differently to the the situation in which we are now in. I mean, if there's going to be large numbers of people essentially gripped by fear, then it is going to make economic recovery in the way in which we've come to think about as recovering from recessions very difficult. Because in some sense, what governments would do in the past is, is use a range of policy instruments to try to stimulate an animal spirits and through boosting people's income, make it easier for them to feel like they can spend money, create demand. But it's not, it seems to me at all obvious that this is what's going to happen this time. And then there are these certain sectors of the economy like hospitality, entertainment, that depend on large numbers of people moving from one place to another and then gathering in reasonably close physical proximity to each other that cannot actually recover until social distancing ends. So this is where I think we, we, we leap into a very significant unknown that we that we can't actually draw on the past in order to try to see how things might develop or what the best response to it might be. I, I um, completely agree with that. The behavioural responses are just completely uncertain at the moment. One thing that has changed, though, is that there's been a an incredible demonstration of the capacity of the state to intervene in the economy in a way that for at least a generation we hadn't thought about. We'd ruled it out as a possibility. And so that, I think, might change the psychology of what people expect the government to do in the future also. And then you can layer on top of that that in the United States and the United Kingdom, we've got somewhat unpredictable governments, slightly random or unexpected policy moves in or an intention to shake things up in in our case by Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson. So huge uncertainties. And that's why in economics, you've got this silly debate about what kind of letter is the recovery going to be. And it seems pretty random to me at the moment. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I want to come on in a second to some things, some other things that governments, including our government, could do. But to try and connect, I might get this wrong, but to try and connect what Helen was saying at the beginning there about the disconnect between financial markets, asset prices, particularly share prices, and what we think of as the productive economy, something that almost everyone has noticed. It's in the news this week because the heads of the big tech firms are going to be 
interrogated, if that's the word, by the United States Congress about whether they are running unfair monopolies or not. But the the biggest asset boom has been in the price of the big tech firms. And Amazon, above all, Jeff Bezos, last week, his net worth went up, I think, $13 billion in one day. It's come down a bit since then. But these numbers are just mind-blowing. And it does, I think, Diane, connect to what you were talking about before in the sense that a lot of people are doing a lot of work at the moment for which they are not being paid and is not really being measured. But in another sense, it is being measured because it is part of the new economy that is generating this extraordinary wealth for Amazon and and people like Jeff Bezos. I mean, we are working online in ways that allow these firms to make use of our data and the the information that we are inputting in order then to sell things to us. Are those two stories connected? I mean, it's the fact that one man was $13 billion better off from Tuesday to Monday connected to the fact that most people are doing a lot of work for which they're not being paid at all. I think they they are connected and in a number of different ways. So Helen knows much about monetary policy than I do, but it's clear that there are distributional effects and economic consequences of the, of monetary policy pushing up share prices, as they have been really since the financial crisis. One consequence of that is a transfer from pensioners and the future workforce because the low interest rates that are the result of that and the low returns on government debt are increasing pension deficits. So there are a number of channels through, through which this works, as well as the one that you're highlighting. But clearly, these technologies have become a fundamental part of our economic infrastructure. And these markets are dominated by often only one, sometimes two, extremely large companies whose founders and executives are incredibly, unbelievably wealthy. It's quite staggering. And the political power that goes along with that economic power. I think there's a really interesting parallel that can be drawn between what happened after the the 2008 crash and what's happening now, particularly where Amazon's concerned, because these big tech companies weren't the big players that they um, are now before then. In those years, Amazon wasn't making a profit. It was able, because of its business model, to continue anyway. And what we've seen, I think, after the crash and the monetary environment is is crucial to that was is that it was a, a an environment in which these large companies like um, Amazon that weren't able to make a profit from their business model could still have access to huge amounts of um, credit and incredibly cheaply, and they could also engage in, in share buybacks. In fact, they were strongly incentivized to, to do so by the Fed's monetary policy. So the post-2008 crash debt in environment is an important part, I think, of the tech story. And then what we've seen this time around, um, at least where Amazon is concerned, is is that the end of people's ability to go physically shopping because of the restrictions that governments placed upon them has been a huge boom to Amazon in particular, because online retail does not suffer in the same way from these restrictions, anything like the same way from these um, restrictions as the high street does. And you can see it in what's now, I think, Amazon's next move in in Britain is going to be like free online food deliveries, not the food being free, but the delivery being free for prime um, customers. So the advantage that Amazon is going to take out of this economic disaster that we're living through is huge. And I would argue that they took actually quite a a significant advantage out of the last one, too. 
there is an economic psychology question here as well. So this is just anecdotal, but it seems that though people can't wrap, no one can wrap their head around Jeff Bezos's worth. A long time ago, it became more money than anyone could understand. But there doesn't seem to be, I think this is true in the United States, particularly a huge amount of resentment because Amazon is recognized, particularly at the moment, to be providing a vital service. And among American politicians, again, this is anecdotal, but there's quite a lot of coverage of this. There's a nervousness about taking on Amazon, partly because there is that sort of political philosophy in America, particularly on the right, that they're fine with monopolies if monopolies are seeming to offer a good service cheaper than was available before, but also because the public potentially are okay with this as well, that unlike, say, banks after the financial crash, in this crisis, Amazon, for many people, seems to be an essential good. And if the consequence of that is some astronomical reward for certain individuals, do we know yet whether people think that that's a price worth paying? I mean, obviously, there are lots of other ways we could regulate this area of economic activity so that that amount of money didn't all go to one person. But the sort of maybe it's the political psychology of this. Maybe people don't mind. Well, Amazon has always been a great service, and that's why it's done so well. And it's not just the retail; it's that the other services they have, like their cloud computing, which is equally done very well out of the pandemic. The other factor here is that in digital markets there are returns to scale and network effects that means actually the scale delivers part of the benefits so competition economists put the emphasis on can you challenge a company like amazon or like google could somebody else with a fantastic new technology get into the market too and i think it's become clear that the answer to that question is no and that these are not just monopolies in the moment they are they look like they've become semi-permanent monopolies and that's why at least outside the united states competition authorities are really gearing up to tackle that entrenched position yeah i mean i think that the american history of this is interesting because if you go back to the big monopolies at the the end of the the 19th century you know including a company like standard oil they sort of worked in ways that aren't that dissimilar, I think, to the way Amazon has dealt with its smaller online competitors in terms of forcing prices down and essentially gobbling them up in doing so. And that still does produce a, a political reaction in the end in the United States against those big monopolies, not just oil company, but the, the railroad companies as well. And it does so around the politics of the independent producer. And if you then skip on to the, the New Deal, you can see a politics that was in part generated by demands to push prices up for producers so that producers could make a living out of, of selling their goods. And that would quite often mean smaller producers as well or independent producers in the case of the oil sector. So you get a mixture, I think, in the United States of a, a politics that was about trying to keep prices low. You get uh, so that customers are not being exploited by monopoly companies. But you also get a politics about trying to push prices up for smaller producers. And it's the second of those that has really, I think, been absent around the growth of Amazon, of Amazon in particular, so that the consumer interest in prices being as low as possible this is what's triumphed in the politics without really any regard whatsoever 
for the the independent and smaller producers who Amazon have squashed. A number of legal cases in Europe pushing the interests of the producers who supply the platforms. But I think Helen is right, the political impetus behind that hasn't been so strong. Is it possible that the difference here is that Amazon also seems when you just sort of interface with it as a consumer to actually be a place on which independent producers can offer their services or their goods. I mean, Amazon will squash any rival to its overall model as a platform, but it tries, and it tries indeed to do it in a way where it looks like it's a kind of marketplace, not just of Amazon products, but of everything in the world, and it allows people that wouldn't otherwise find a market to do that. And then at the moment during the pandemic, when we're stuck at home, it is our marketplace, but it's at least possible over the next few months or maybe few years as we emerge from this that we will see the devastation. I mean, the things that you were talking about before in entertainment, in service, in restaurants, and so on, that as people, as we come out of this, we will see that while maybe on Amazon the world's goods have been available to us, out there in the sort of bricks and mortar world of the economy that was where we did a lot of our activity, including going out to eat, to enjoy ourselves, there has been absolute carnage. I mean, do you think that's possibly coming in six months, a year, and that that might produce the sort of political reaction like the one you were talking about there, Helen, where people sense that it's really damaging to allow these small enterprises to go to the wall, that we're in the middle of this somehow. Amazon's in a sweet spot at the moment, but it's not going to last. In a way, but I think that the the real danger uh, is that it's just too late. That's... To do anything about Amazon? <laughs> no, I don't mean about Amazon, but I, <laughs> I, what I mean by that is is that I think that there's a kind of tacit assumption, maybe this is a bit unfair, but going around that we can carry on um, prioritising the health risks for some time yet and that then there will be ways of, of putting the let's call it, as you did nicely, the brick and mortar economy back together again. And I'm a lot more sceptical about whether that really is, you know, possible or not, is you can't just switch these things on and off. And it's actually in terms of providing support to businesses in the brick and mortar economy going to become significantly more difficult over the the next months, including the fate of the furlough. Program. I mean, just to give you know one instance, how long can you keep the theatres closed without the theatre sector disappearing? So I think that there may well be a shock coming in terms of people realising that actually we, this stuff that they expect to be there when we, so to speak, come back out of our houses again um, isn't. But I think by the time the shock comes, the danger is, is that the damage is already done and, and it's not repairable damage. I agree with that. I think we're in for quite a grim winter as the furlough scheme gets withdrawn and a lot of companies that have hung on until now will decide that they have to close. They can't afford to keep going. So I'm, I'm a bit pessimistic about that. But you know, to go back to your Amazon point, David, it is true that they have expanded the market for all kinds of small producers. So although they might have um, squeezed the terms, they've provided access to consumers for a lot of small companies that wouldn't otherwise have been able to reach all of those potential customers. So it's it's a swings and roundabouts thing. But I think the way that they behave will increasingly start to get challenged by regulators and they'll they'll find that they're required to, you know, not change their APIs overnight and not self-preference for their own manufactured products and so on. So there'll be some change coming. So if we go back to 
where we started with the question of work and, and unpaid work. And if it's possible, maybe even likely, that some of these trends, Diane, that you said were sort of exacerbated by the pandemic are actually going to lead to a fundamental shift in how our political economy functions and that you know some things will not come back. What then can be done beyond just measuring work and value, but rewarding it? What are the ways? Are there ways? Are there policy or broader solutions here on the part of governments, on the parts of businesses to have a, a, a wage economy, a, an economy that pays people in a way that's more commensurate with the work that they do if the nature of this work is fundamentally shifting? We're peering into the unknown a bit, aren't we? But I think the distributional questions really come to the fore. I mean, particularly if we're in a situation where unemployment is going up and use of food banks is going up and, you know, we've got the national food strategy uh, coming out today saying that hungry children will carry a legacy into the future that is one that we would want to avoid. So I think we come face to face with that. And then it becomes a question about the politics of it. Do we see the minimum wage go up? Do we see um, conditions of work changing so that the worst outrages of gig economy work are no longer possible? Do we see taxes increase to pay people in public services more because we've got away with not doing that through importing immigrants who work for minimum wage or even below minimum wage where it's not policed properly? So those are quite fundamental changes in the way that we've ordered our economy for the past couple of decades. And there is a, a really potentially big question here, which is, do we need to break the link between work and reward. So the obvious way that link could be broken is a universal basic income, an idea that you would get an income from the state regardless of what work you do or how you think about the work you do. Or do we still have to think that the essential part of how we understand these things is to connect reward to work? Are we, are we at the point where these things could be coming apart? I'm not a fan of universal basic income. I mean, by all means, make the benefit system simpler and fairer. But UBI seems to me a neoliberal policy, and that's why it's so beloved of all the bros in Silicon Valley, because it takes responsibility away from employers to pay a fair wage. So I would rather see a proper minimum wage and a fairer reward system in work and universal basic services so that people who, wherever they live in the country, whatever their background, have access to good schools, good public transport systems, fast enough and stable enough broadband. And you can't use a UBI to pay for your bus service. It's a very individual solution to collective problems. Yeah, I think there's a whole other um, question here, though, about taxes in relation to the digitalised economy, including, for that matter, Amazon, but also that are going to be exacerbated by this potentially long-term significant change of towards more people working at home and fewer businesses having, you know, like large um, offices in city centres. Because at the moment, the digitalised economy for firms, particularly when it doesn't involve renting um, physical buildings and paying business property um, taxes, is not taxed in the, in the same way. So if the direction of travel is towards a more digitalised economy and less in the brick and mortar economy, that has significant consequences for the tax base too. So if you're going to have the state bringing in less tax, 
then the only way in which it can be then spending more money on supporting citizens in in one way or another is 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 if it's going to be borrowing more money and it's already borrowing enormous amounts of of money in response to this crisis and and is doing so after a decade long in which the the, the debt in the world economy has grown very significantly so I think that if we're going in the direction of a more digitalized economy and a less brick and mortar economy, then you've got to actually rethink taxes as well, because I don't think that governments in Europe and the, in, in the United States, but not only in here, can manage with the tax base that is likely to be yielded by a further significant shift towards digitalization. I agree with that. I think we will see a big shift in the tax structure. There are some obvious steps. You could tax all the packaging that Amazon uses to send us all the parcels and give the money to the local authorities that currently have to pay for the recycling. That would be a good idea. So there's another very big question, maybe we could end with this, which is, I mean, it's a sort of one of the oddities of maybe the last 10 years is the conjunction of the digital economy and the bricks and mortar economy, because to some people's surprise, maybe not to everyone, but to some people's surprise, what the tech revolution seemed to do was place a premium on gathering people together, particularly in urban environments where they can spark off each other, putting universities and businesses and restaurants and coffee shops and theatres, bringing people literally physically together, generated economic dynamism. And that became the new orthodoxy in a way, that the future belonged to cities, the future belonged to significant, dense gatherings of human beings with this technology then affording all sorts of new kinds of dynamism. And it may be that as a consequence of this pandemic, we're going back to that slightly earlier vision of what the digital economy is going to do, which is actually it is it is both going to allow and possibly even require us to be more physically separate from each other. Could that then, Diane, give some political impetus to what you were talking about, which is a sort of universal basic services idea, which is that you don't just put all of the services in the places where you then hope that the people will gather. You do make sure that a lot of these services are distributed nationally, because people increasingly are going to be located in different places. Is, or, or am I, you know, is it actually the case that this is a temporary thing, and we're going to go back to that trend that people together is, is where dynamism happens. A question to which I'm not sure I know the answer. I tend to think that in two or three years, we'll be back to concentrating in urban centres. And that's because of the long-term shift in the economy toward things that, that require conversation, essentially, the face-to-face contact. And so, although we've all coped to some extent by doing this online instead, I think there's a limit how far you can do that. So if I had to place money on it, I'd I'd say in three years' time, we'd be back to gathering together in city centres with all the exciting amenities that you talk about. But I think that's highly uncertain. It may be that there's a shift of the kind that you are describing. I don't know. And I should say that presumably this is going to be edited out, but earlier on in this podcast, there was a moment where none of us was talking and I said, we really need eye contact for this to work. So even even podcasts... uh, Sometimes struggle. Oh, it's good. <laughs> it's yeah, Helen, there's another pause for you. That's okay. Imagine that I looked at you then and nodded. Yeah, I think I think that we also though have to remember that the shift towards urban centres becoming the centres of economic activity, I think, really probably takes off in the nineties. So that 
it um, precedes the the tech revolution aspect of matters and that is probably in the end much more a function of the shift away from manufacturing towards service sector economies and providing personal services to people in places to which that they travel and then interact with other people than it is them doing that in ways that is also facilitated by technology and that having any effect in terms of collective um, dynamism so there is I think going to be some push towards trying to rebalance economies in the sense of having larger manufacturing sectors because there is going to be quite some drive and whether it will succeed or not is is another matter to repatriate at least some manufacturing production from abroad particularly from China back in western economies but it's quite difficult to see that there's going to be enough of that to structurally to move away from um, the service economy. So I think in some sense, we're going to have to go back to service economies concentrated in urban centres because we haven't got anything else that is going to provide sufficient economic activity in Western economies um, anyway to sustain relatively high levels of employment. Accelerating the 90s, but it's also millennia of human history and you you can track economic growth through the process of urbanisation and, and people gathering together in cities, you know, and all that vast literature of ambitious young people wanting to leave their small towns and go to the big city. So I, I, I can't see that very long trend being overturned easily. And for once, universities are really at the heart of this story because part of that more recent, in the digital age, I suppose, more recent trend to gathering people together was to try and bring business and other parts of the service economy close to particularly research universities and that was often where the greatest amount of dynamism happened and you know, the future of universities is as uncertain as anything it's not as bleak as the future of theatres but it really does depend I think on the next three or four years whether that model can continue or not because it's not completely obvious from where we sit now that we are well set up that. No, no. But again, I mean, when I say we, I mean universities. The business model of universities has changed several times over the centuries. And the one that we had up until the start of the pandemic is clearly broken. And there will have to be a new one. But, it, but you know, just as there are, have always been cities, there will always be universities. I think there will always be this human imperative to gather together and exchange ideas in subtle ways that you, you can't do through the technology. You can find links to the articles that Diane referred to and also to her brilliant article in the New York Times in our show notes, as always, and we will tweet them at tppodcast underscore. Next week, Helen and I are going to be talking to the historian David Kiniston, mainly, I think, about football. He's written a book about his memories and his record of the 2016-17 season in football and in politics. A lot happened in football even more happened in politics. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. <laughs>